me ask you uh, to turn with me, if you like, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. This morning, if you're using the Bibles and the benches, can be found on page 1691. reading through verse 26 this morning. This is God's word. Then they, that is the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry with the reward that he got for his wickedness. Judas bought a field there. He fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, uh, al that is the field of blood. Uh, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also known as Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. So far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, dear friends, here the disciples are, having witnessed the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ back into heaven, a spectacular scene. And they really don't know exactly what is in store for them. Yes, they've followed Jesus' instructions now, as we've seen, to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them. And who knows in their minds how they would have understood that at this point. They're waiting in Jerusalem for the Spirit to be poured out on them. No doubt they are not expecting that Jesus is going to take as long as we today know He is taking to return to them. 
I mean, however long it's going to be that they have to wait and then receive the Holy Spirit, uh, they cannot imagine, very likely at this point, that Jesus is going to take as long as we know that He has. And we're still uh, waiting today, right? In that in-between time when He ascended to the right hand of the Father and He will return to judge the living and the dead. So they're waiting for that. But... You see, when we see the Lord Jesus ascending and we are awaiting His return, we expect that Luke is going to launch immediately into telling us about the explosive expansion and growth of the early church. Because as we said last time, we are expecting Jesus right away to continue after He has ascended to work the mighty works that He was doing while He was here. Only this time through the apostles. I mean, we are anticipating to rejoice in the glorious expansion and the the power and the authority of Christ extended into the world, into the pagan Gentile world, the gospel going forth, miracles performed by the hand of the apostles to expand the kingdom. Let's get started on that right away, Luke. That's what we're expecting when we read uh, this account. But you can't help but thinking, Luke isn't the most skilled at telling the feel-good story, right? Because the first thing that he talks about, while the apostles are awaiting the Holy Spirit and awaiting Jesus to return to them, and what we know is they're awaiting to be sent out to see the progression of the gospel to the ends of the earth, the first thing he talks about is in verse 18. Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, and his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Now, come on, Luke. Is that the right way to start this glorious story? This joyous, powerful expansion, explosive growth of the early church as Christ sends His apostles out to work in His power and in His name? It's alarming that this little story fits here right at the beginning of the book of Acts. It stands out. It sticks out like a sore thumb. It is decidedly unpleasant. I mean, this passage is one of many passages that people point to in the Scripture to show that it's just ridiculous for religious people to trust in these kinds of words. Because it's just common and base and sickening. What do you mean this man falls headlong and his body bursts open and all his intestines spill out? Why would you tell the story of Judas' death, especially, why would you record the details of his death? It is decidedly unpleasant. Why does he tell this story? That is the question that we are going to answer this morning. There is a reason why you perked up when you heard verse 18 read. His body burst out and all his intestines spilled out. It's meant to catch your attention and it's there for deliberate reasons. There are at least three that we must consider. The first reason I want us to know very clearly that Luke records the details of Judas' death is because he wants Theophilus, to whom he's writing this book, and anyone else who will end up reading this book, even us today, he wants us to be certain that the kind of death that Judas died is further proof of the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures that have been written a thousand years before the actual event happened, which further demonstrates the truth of our faith. 
the death of Judas in this despicable way is further proof that the Old Testament Scriptures are being fulfilled in the life and in the history of Jesus Christ and His Apostles and it further demonstrates to Theophilus, therefore, that the Scripture is true. Now, this may seem as an, uh, an obvious point to some of us, but I want you to think about this carefully for a minute. That the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, which Peter is going to quote to show that they have been fulfilled in the death of Judas, they were written a thousand years before what happened happened. Now, it's amazing. Critics of the Scripture will always point to what they think are these small details of contradiction in the Scripture, which, upon further examination, are not contradictions at all and have perfectly reasonable explanations. They will point to supposed holes in accounts of the Scripture, and upon further examination, we see that they're not holes at all. And all the while, these critics will fail to notice obvious and absolutely astounding things. For example, Judas was talked about a thousand years before he ever came into the world. And the details of his life actually played out in his life in a way that even if he had planned, he probably couldn't have made it happen. The Scripture is fulfilled in the apostasy and the death of Judas. Peter had evidently learned the lesson that Jesus had instructed the disciples about after he had risen from the dead. You remember he appeared, first of all, on the road to those who didn't recognize him and he began to open the Scriptures to them. He began to explain to them how all of the Scriptures were about him. And then the disciples brought Jesus back and when Jesus finally appeared before Peter and the others, it says, look, Jesus said to them, Luke 24, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then it says... Jesus opened their minds, and Peter was there. Jesus opened Peter's mind to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, it is written like this, that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And Luke had carefully researched all of this, and he is demonstrating to Theophilus and to us that what was written about Judas thousands of years before came true a thousand years later. Acts 1.16, what we just read. Peter says, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter had learned the lesson. He was now able to see what was happening around him and read it back into the Old Testament Scripture and then have the assurance himself that everything was going according to God's plan. And you and Theophilus are to have the assurance... That your faith is true and it's demonstrated by the remarkable fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Scripture, Peter said, had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas. Verse 20, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it and may another take his place of leadership. Luke is writing about this unpleasant, avoidable detail in the life of the early church, again to assure us that the Christian faith is true. Jesus' words also. This is another part of that same reason. I mean, Scripture in one sense, right, 
the Old Testament Scripture must be fulfilled. But remember, Jesus also came. Luke is thinking about that history and about what Jesus spoke and what He did. Jesus spoke that also was true and Scripture and He wants to show that what's happening in the early church is consistent with and is the continuation of Jesus' Word. You see, Jesus' Word as Scripture is also being fulfilled here. That should assure you. Remember that Jesus in Luke chapter 6 had chosen 12 apostles. 12 apostles. And the question may have risen in somebody's mind if Jesus had established 12 apostles and He had said later in Luke 22 that these 12 would sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and one defected and one apostatized, would Jesus' plan still be at work? Or had Jesus now passed off the scene and everything was to be decided by the will of the apostles? And Luke is saying, no, I want you to see exactly what happened with Judas, that he was replaced in order for you to see that Jesus is still choosing His apostles, He's still calling the shots, and what He said will not be overturned. It's interesting how the apostles decide to have the replacement apostle appointed. They cast lots. They cast lots. They, they set up these two men who they discern to be qualified. They meet the qualification of being able to testify about the historicity of the resurrection and the life and the ministry of Jesus, right? It had to be somebody who was with Him all along. And they say, look, we can't discern between these two men. So they cast lots, which was, we don't know the details about it, it was simply a way of asking for supernatural decisions to be made. It was a way of asking the Lord to reveal His sovereign, private, secret will in the world to His people. And the lot, whatever that means exactly, something like maybe rolling dice or some random, so to speak, thing along those lines that the Lord would direct to execute His will. And here comes uh, the lot landing on Matthias. Now, why is that the case? Why do they choose to do it that way? Well, it's interesting when you think about the Gospel writers talking about the selection of the apostles in the first place. Actually, Luke is the only one who uses the language in Luke 6 that Jesus chose the twelve disciples and then named them apostles. Jesus chose. And the apostles are aware of this when they are replacing Judas who apostatized. They are looking for Jesus to choose. Because Jesus said there would be twelve, and Jesus said He would have the twelve who would be able to bear witness. And that was His plan for the establishment of the church. And that is why Luke gives us all of these details. It's to assure us that Jesus is doing the work, He is Lord of His church, and His plan is going to be fulfilled. Not only Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled, but the words of Jesus before He left are being fulfilled later also. That gives us assurance that our faith is true and that Jesus is active. That is good evidence. That is good encouraging evidence to support our faith that Christ is real and our faith is true. There's another reason why Luke starts with this very decidedly unpleasant detail when he begins the story. It's because and it's an occasion for Luke to warn Theophilus and to warn you 
and to warn me about the terrors of being found without Christ. The Holy Spirit speaks to us this morning and warns us against being found without Christ. He falls headlong, his body bursts open, and all his intestines spill out, such that everyone in Jerusalem hears about it, and they call that field in their own language the field of blood. This is a picture of the pathetic, miserable end of anyone who is found without Christ. You will live on only in infamy like Judas did. And it's an especially pathetic picture if you consider some of the details. Because in another Gospel, we actually read that Judas hung himself. Now, again, critics of the Scripture will point to that and say, well, you have a contradiction because some places it says that Judas hung himself. Other places it says that he fell down headlong and his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Which is it? Well, there's a couple of ways we, we think about that. One way is that perhaps he actually did hang himself, right? But the story went around town that he fell headlong and his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. In other words, maybe Luke is not trying to give us the actual historical fact, but he's just reporting the sort of terrible thing that was being said about Judas after he died to reflect the just horrific nature of being left at the end without Christ. But more than likely, both Luke and Matthew are saying historical facts. They're being good journalists. And how would we put them together? Someone hanging themselves and yet falling headlong. Well, Judas is so pathetic that he can't even hang himself right. That's how you would put it together. Judas, presumably, tying the rope and kicking out something from under him to hang but being so miserable that he couldn't get the knot properly so that he fell down when he was trying to hang himself and fell upon something that split him wide open. That's a terrible picture. That's an embarrassment. That is shameful. But this, Luke tells us, to drive into our minds the terrors of being found without Christ. And there is nothing happy about this. That's a warning maybe for you if you are rejecting the truth of the Christian religion. Rejecting, rejecting the offerings of peace and pardon and mercy that Jesus extends to you while there is still time. This is a warning to those of you who take the Christian religion as uh, something that you could have or not have. Something that you can trivialize or make whatever you want to make out of it. No. And if you think about it, this is really a warning against a special kind of being found without Christ. It's the special terror of apostasy. Someone who is in the covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this case, Judas, who walked with him, was a close friend of his, who in many cases worshipped him, undoubtedly, 
at least outwardly, gave the form of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the sin of apostasy. So that all that's left is a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think a man will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was outwardly sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. That is exactly what Judas did. That is exactly who he was. He is an apostate. He gave all of the form of religion. If he lived today, he would have sat in the benches of a church every Sunday of his life, but never confessed his utter unworthiness to the Lord and never received the grace and the forgiveness of Christ and never went forward in thankful obedience. Never repented from his hard heart. It's exactly what he did. And let me warn you against apostasy. All of you who have professed faith in the church, all of you who have been baptized even at a time that you don't remember into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and who you are growing up, having heard the preaching of God from your youth, do not forsake Jesus Christ. Your end will be as bad and worse than Judas. And that's why that story is there. This is a warning to you. And if you are growing weary along the way of holding fast to the Scripture and that which is true, growing weary of living the Christian life, let me remind you, there are really two choices. There's that one, and then there is this one. Now, also in this regard, it is a reminder to all of God's people, this terrible apostasy of Judas, that if the Scripture had written it about him a thousand years before, we know that Judas went, as Jesus had told us in the Gospel of Luke, Judas went as it had been written of him. In other words, as Judas had been ordained. Which is a striking reminder also to us that there but for the grace of God go we. If we have any sort of pride or self-congratulations about us not being like Judas, then let's put it to death right now. If we have any pride about us being a Christian and everybody dirty out in the world or any hypocrites in the church not being as holy and as righteous as we are, then let's get rid of it, all of it, right now. Because the only reason that any of us are able to have true faith in Christ and will persevere to the end, unlike Judas, is because it has been written of us that God is merciful. From before the foundation of the world, God looked at the fallen human race and He saw Judas and saw us in the same sinful position, same descendants of our first father Adam, born into sin and condemnation and hell-bent against God. And the only reason that we are finding ourselves fleeing to Christ and repenting from our sins and belonging to Him and not Judas is because we have been chosen by His grace. And it was His decision to write that about us when we didn't deserve it, right? You know, that's what we deserve 
to live on only in infamy, to fall headlong and have our bodies burst open and all the intestines spilled out, to speak nothing of what Judas suffered after he had his earthly death and suffers yet today. The grace of God to you and to me is a wonder. Let's close with this. There's a third reason why Luke records the uh, details, this unpleasant story right at the beginning of this grand story of the expansion of the early church. And it's because he takes the opportunity right here at the beginning to describe what's happening in the church. And like we said last time, when he describes what, hap- what happens in the early church, it prescribes for us what the new covenant church should continue to be like. I mean, in the replacement of Judas, we find the church uh, structured and doing things in a particular way. Let me show you. Uh, notice the way that the church is spoken about in verse 15. Peter stands up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. Now, you see, there's a group here. A group numbering about 120. In verse 15, that word they translate believers in our translation is actually brothers. These days, Peter stood up among the brothers. I want you to notice something. This church is already becoming, and already is really, an identifiable, countable, organized community that will be looked upon by other people that are not part of it and they will be named the brothers or at least they call themselves the brothers. This is probably the earliest name that Christians that the Christian church was called. You see, the Christian church, this is the point, is not just some loose gathering of a few people who happen to believe in Jesus. The early church, right from the outset, has structure. It has twelve apostles you see. And it is an identifiable community that can be counted. Now, likely the number was right about 120 that belonged to this New Covenant Church, but that number likely is approximate because 120 was the minimum number that in Jewish society would be allowed to have an official council that would be, in some sense, recognized by the government of the time. So it's an approximate number likely, or it could even be an exact number. We're not sure about that. But Peter stands up among these brothers, this organized, identifiable, countable community. A church is not a cattle call for anybody and everyone just to pass through and then go to the next big one when the hot worship band shows themselves to be there. A local church, which is trying to be obedient to the structure of the church which Jesus establishes, is an organized community that has a countable group that can be distinguished from others. Now, you're going to see this develop more and be explained more as we go throughout Acts, but I want you to know it's right from the beginning. In an age of just, you know, looseness and throwing off authority and calling everything a church, it's important to be reminded of this. Notice that the church was already being governed by Christ through His apostles. Churches are not to be governed Note, by a democracy. In those days, verse 15, Peter stood up because Christ has always and today continues to rule His church and to make decisions in His church via the apostolic ministry. 
And when the apostles were passing off the scene, they saw fit to install officers in the church to rule in the name of Christ with apostolic authority. This is the description of the early church. Notice that this church was meeting regularly as the community of believers. And this is an admonition to any of you who may be thinking that participation in the public worship of the church is something that you can take or leave. Or that you can fit into your life when you find it convenient. That is not acceptable. And that is not following the pattern of the church that Christ has established. This is an identifiable official community under apostolic authority, in this case the apostles themselves, in our case the ministers of the word and the elders which Christ has appointed, that meets regularly as that community and we are here as they were regularly. And finally, of course, the earliest description of their activity says that they were doing what? That this church was, verse 14, joining together constantly in prayer. And not just the minister of the Word and the elders, but notice, they joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with His brothers. The church community together gathered and praying. I'm not going to press it, but I'm going to tell you again, the elders are still struggling to get you to meet in your prayer groups for outreach. Repent from that. Let our church be molded by the pattern of the early church. Show up. Or show up to one that can fit in your schedule. These are the reasons why we have this unpleasant story here at the beginning. Assurance that our faith is true because it is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scripture and the fulfillment of Jesus' words. A reminder that we have been saved by the grace of Christ and we would be left to the apostasy of Judas if it weren't for His kindness. And we shall continue to be faithful in shaping our church according to the details even of this story. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank You for Your Word and for its power to instruct us and to convict us. Uh, we thank You for the abundant testimony that You have left to us, the clear witness of, the power and, of Your power and Your authority. And we rejoice that uh, You came into the world according to the Scripture to save us according to our names having been written in the book of life. We pray for each one, Lord, here this morning that we would consider deep in our souls, in our minds and hearts the uh, danger of apostasy. Give us grace, Lord. We are weak and we need Your help. Persevere us unto the end through the means of grace in the church. We also ask, Lord, that You will uh, sanctify us and our church, that we would fit the model of the early church in the ways that You instruct us. Would we be faithful uh, in prayer? Would we have our church governed according to the uh, pattern of Christ? Would we not be uh, deceived by the uh, thoughts abounding even in the uh, so-called Christian uh, culture in which we live today? Be merciful to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.